and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Thank you, Anna. That was beautiful. Um, You know, whether it's the sound system or the praise team or the choir, you know, we so grateful for all the teenagers and 20-somethings stepping up to have a ministry in the life of the tabernacle, to join all those uh, that are older in uh, loving this place and what God does with us through together here. Aren't you thankful for them? Well, if you have your Bibles, let's see them. There it is. I love the Warren Wiersbe quote, when the child of God looks into the Word of God and sees the Son of God, they are transformed by the Spirit of God into the image of God for the glory of God. And so turn once again to Colossians, this time chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I think about Dallas Seminary's slogan. It's Teach truth and love well. Teach truth, love well. And this past year, there was a beautiful example of Christian love between brothers in Christ there at Dallas uh, Theological Seminary. Greg Hatterberg and Stephen Brammer are both uh, on the faculty and staff at uh, Dallas, and they've been friends for over 25 years, and that has extended to their time serving the Lord together there. They've actually led many trips to Israel, and I hear they're among the best trips there are to Israel. But one day in 2022, last year, they were having lunch together, and Dr. Brammer looked a little sad. And Greg asked him what was up. Stephen said, well, you know that years and years ago, uh, my sister donated me a kidney. Well, that kidney, even though it lasted much longer than it should, is now failing, and I'm going to need another kidney transplant. And Greg looked directly at him and said, I'm going to give you mine. Well, they both knew, of course, that there were many things that would have to match up for a non-family member, just a friend, a brother in Christ, to give a kidney. But uh, he was honored and thankful that Greg was willing to do that. And many others were as well. There was at least 20 uh, faculty and staff and students that would said, hey, let me get the test to see if I could be a donor for you. But at the end of the day, sure enough, it was Greg's kidney that was going to be the best match for his friend Stephen. And... Everything worked out perfectly when the day came to have the transplant done. It doesn't always work out perfectly, but for them it did. And the men really impressed the hospital staff with their faith and friendship. One day, Greg walked into Stephen's room and said, Hey, Brammer, I lost a kidney, and I think it might be in here. (laughs) Sure enough, it was. But about that time, in a more serious note, an 11-year-old walked in the room with a gift and gave it to Greg, the kidney donor, and he said, thank you so much for giving me my grandpa back. That's awesome, isn't it? The love and friendship between the two men also influenced all those future pastors and ministry leaders of one way or another, uh, the student body at Dallas Seminary. And one student said it best, we've heard our professors tell us the truth of the Bible. Now we see our profs living the truth of the Bible. DTS is not just 
teach truth, but it's also love well. And I thought, man, if we could get a summary for the entire book of Colossians, the four-chapter uh, four letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians, that would be it, wouldn't it? Teach truth, love well. Colossians 4, I'm going to read verses 7 through 18. We're going to mainly focus on 15 through 18 in the message, simply because, uh, you know, last week I did the monologue. Uh, our friend Tukikos was with us, Chance the Ripper, and he went through the information that's largely in verses 7 through 14. Uh, but let's read it here. Tukikos will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So there's a key verse, verse 11, because it's how we know that those who come after this are not Jewish, they're not circumcised, and it's the one way we know that Luke as the writer of Luke and Acts, was a Gentile man, the, probably the only writer in all the scriptures uh, that the Holy Spirit used that was a non-Jewish background man. Because look what it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis, the sister cities. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas, or Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, you have it also read, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you, have, that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Grace be with y'all. It's in the plural. Grace be with you all. The book of remembrance, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. And thank you for the book of Colossians, the things we've learned in here. As we come to this last message, we're so thankful that it begins and ends with your grace. Lord, I love the acronym for grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Lord, thank you that you were not content for this world that you'd created and the people within it. You were not content for us to die and be judged as sinners against you. So you did the most unthinkable thing. You entered this sinful world as a human yourself, and you grew fully God, fully man. Your great love made you willing to be a sacrifice for our sins. And we thank you that uh, your perfect life that you lived and all the things you did while you were on earth made you able to be a perfect substitute for our sins one who could be accepted on our behalf to pay off the debt that we owe. Father, we're so thankful, Jesus, that you did that. We think of that at Easter time, the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're so thankful. And Lord, we thank you that uh, 
when we receive your grace by faith, we become children of God. And you put your spirit inside of us. And from that time on, we can not only seek your face in the scriptures and learn them and teach the truth, Lord, but we can love you well. And Lord, we're thankful that uh, for all these names that we have here in Colossians 4, each one did something that was noteworthy and were included in the Bible, the Holy Spirit. Their names were put in the Bible, Lord, and we're thinking about Malachi, where there's a book of remembrance and how each and every person's deeds are recorded. There's a record in heaven of, of what gets done for you, Lord. And we pray that we, we know the only way we can go to heaven is by being in the book of life, saved by your grace. But we thank you that you're looking to reward us in the future for what's done for you now. Thank you for the way Colossians reminds us of that, Lord God. We pray that in everything we do, word and deed, you'd be glorified and lifted up. We do it in your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, first, just to bring us back in from last week, verses 7 through 18, we see 12 people are named here from verse 7 all the way down through the end, verse 18 there. And there are 12 eternal destinies in those 12 names. Now, imagine something with me for a moment. Imagine something with me. Imagine that you live back in the days the Bible was written. So we're nearly 2,000 years ago now when the New Testament was written, longer if it was the Old Testament. But let's say that one of the authors of the Bible saw you living and put your name in the Bible. If what the Bible author put in was how you're living right now, <laughs> would it be a reference you were happy with or would it be a reference you were ashamed of? What would they have to say about you if they were observing your life and a letter was being written and all of a sudden you were put in like that? Do you know that there are actually books of remembrance being written in heaven? I referred to it in my prayer. Uh, you're in those books. You're either in there as serving God or not. So turn to Malachi 3.16. Now Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you get to the Gospels, you just need to go one more book back before Matthew to Malachi. Uh, or uh, as the Italians say, Malachi. Um, Malachi 3. Most folks have a grasp of John 3.16, but Malachi 3.16 is a verse you might want to know as well, and all the way down through verse 18. So Malachi 3, verses 16 through 18. Love to hear those pages turning. You can be looking at it on a Bible app on your phone, but if you do, make sure you get the one that has the page turning noise. Okay, just, just kidding. Malachi 3, verse 16. Then those who feared Yahweh spoke with one another, the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, ooh, that's worth underlining or circling. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. Powerful, powerful package, uh, passage there. Well, back in Colossians chapter 4, 12 names are given, and each had an eternal destiny, just like us. Tukikos, who I gave the monologue about last week, he's called a faithful deacon, a beloved brother, a fellow servant. All those would be wonderful things to have said of any of us as we appear before the Lord one day. Onesimus, also good things about him. He had gone back to fight 
uh, Colossia there to make peace with uh, Philemon, and it appears that they did a glorious reconciliation, as I referred to last week. By the way, you know, uh, the punishment in Rome for a runaway slave could have been execution by crucifixion. And so what a, uh, you know, formidable thing for uh, Onesimus to face that and go and have his uh, Philemon forgive him and uh, release him and free him. Very powerful. And the gospel was changing everything in their day as in ours. Aristarchus, uh, who was a great servant of the Lord and uh, history tells us, uh, church tradition tells us, was killed for the faith himself, just like Paul and Peter were. And then Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, John Mark, the one who Paul had once called useless, but now was useful in the ministry and the Mark that went on to write uh, the gospel of Mark and who did so many neat things uh, for the Lord. And Barnabas, of course, we remember him, the great encourager. His name was really Joseph, but the early church leaders were so impressed with him, they gave him the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, Mr. Encouragement. Just like once upon a time a baseball player was Mr. Hustle, Barnabas was Mr. Encouragement. And some of you are like that around here. You encourage others. We ought to call you Barney. Um, But that's a, yeah, that's a... um, Barnabas, what a great guy. Jesus called justice. We don't know anything else about him, but what was written here. As I said in verse 11, it lets us know that Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus called justice were Jewish background believers. They were of the circumcision. They were there in the imprisonment with Paul. Tychicus was a Gentile, uh, so you got to be careful how you read down through there to not lump him in with the Gentiles, uh, with with the Jewish background believers, because he obviously was delivering the letter. Paul saying, "Who's there with him? Who's from a Jewish background?" Then he mentions Gentiles. He mentions Epaphras, who had brought the gospel to Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis. We we learned uh, uh, in the earlier uh, chapters. And Luke, Dr. Luke, the Gentile, the beloved physician, uh, and this is the only place that we learn that he was a Gentile believer. So the scripture yields, uh, you know, treasures when you study it closely. This is the place we know that from. And Demas, uh, Gentile background believers there with Paul. And then as we get into today's passage we really want to close in on, we see in verse 15 that Nympha's mentioned who hosts the Laodicean church in her home. And then Paul mentions Archippus, the pastor of the Colossian church. How do we know he was the pastor of the Colossian church? We'll see it in a few minutes. He's mentioned in Philemon that goes right along with uh, this letter to the Colossians. So Paul mentions himself, 12 in all. Jesus had 12 disciples. One of them wound up being a Judas who walked away from Jesus and his fellow disciples. And of these 12 disciples mentioned here, one named Demas walks away from Jesus and uh, from, from Paul and his fellow disciples. Later, Paul wrote 2 Timothy 4.10 that says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He's deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He's in love with this present world. He's turning from the faith that he said he once embraced, and he loves the world instead. And so it happened 2,000 years ago. It happens today. There are people that are around the things of faith. They are with their uh, fellow believers for a while. And theologically, uh, you say, well, did they 
lose their salvation? Did they never really have salvation? Are they saved and backslidden? It seems clear from a good look at the scriptures that scripture doesn't allow for a category of ever truly having eternal life and then losing it. I mean, if you ever really have it, that's forever out there. And so if God has sovereignly brought you to salvation and he's the author and finisher of your faith, he who begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So when we hear of somebody loving the world and walking completely away, our biblical categories for understanding are either that there is a kernel of faith in there somewhere and they're in a deeply backslidden state, or uh, that they never truly were believers. They were presented, uh, maybe they misunderstood the gospel. They thought, well, I'll have hell insurance, but Jesus won't be my Lord. And the Bible makes very clear that at the front end of salvation, you understand that this is about following Jesus, even though it's hard to do in this lifetime, but God is with you and your brothers and sisters in Christ are with you as well. I think about the ways the scripture gives us for kind of understanding that through people like uh, uh, Peter and Judas. I mean, they both really blew it, didn't they? The gospel accounts of Christ last week show two of Jesus's followers blowing it big time. It shows Judas betraying the Lord for 30 pieces of silver It shows him then um, having some regret about that, but it doesn't look like there was repentance. And he, we're told, went out and hung himself. He did not go back and gather with his believers. He did not go back to Jesus. Well, Peter blew it gloriously too. I mean, he's, if you read the Greek language, he's cursing to that servant girl and saying, I don't know the blankety blank man. And, and, And he had just a matter of hours before said, if all these other chumps, <laughs> that's, not, that, that's not in the Greek, that's in my uh, fair phrase for it. If all these other chumps, if all these other guys that don't measure up and fail you, Jesus, I won't. But he did. He blew it. But where was he next? While Jesus was on the cross and then uh, going to the grave, where was uh, Peter next? The gospels show us that he was with his fellow disciples. And I wish I could have been in that room with them. He went to them and you know his head was down. And you can see some of the others maybe saying, you know, only John was really at the cross, Peter. We, we, we were afraid too. We're, we're gathered here. We don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, you know, crucifixion usually stops pretend uh, Messiah figures and, and were we wrong to follow Jesus? They're still trying to figure it all out. But they were together as they were trying to figure it out. And so Peter was with his fellow disciples as they were trying to figure it all out. And the next word they got was that uh, Jesus was alive, that the tomb was empty. And Peter ran, and later he swam to be with Jesus. So what a difference. Judas went away from Jesus, went away from his fellow disciples. Peter went to his fellow disciples, and as soon as he can, got right with Jesus. And that makes all the difference when you've had these moments of failure, these moments of walking away. And some of you might be here today or watching online, and you've been away a long time. Don't be a Demas. Don't be a Demas. Be a John Mark, who had a humiliating moment, yes, but went on to show how useful he was to the Lord. Don't be a Judas who denied the Lord and betrayed the Lord. Be a Peter that denied the Lord but ran back to him as fast as he could. What would the Bible say about you if your earthly life ended today? I like to think of life as a book. Uh, Some of your books may be an awful book. You know, every chapter so far has been a terrible one. You know, the story of the ways you've defied God, the story of the things you've done. And um, so far, yours may not be so good. But you know what I've discovered in my own reading? Every book is a good book if it has a good ending. Amen. 
Sometimes you're like, how's this going to turn out? How's this going to turn out? Oh, what a mess. And then you see the hand of God come in to the story and everything changes with Jesus. And every book is a good book if it has a good ending. The last words in Colossians there in verse 18 are grace to you. And so no matter how wicked or selfish your life story is up to this point, by God's grace you can be forgiven. If you'll provide the sinner, he'll provide the Savior. And you can start a new chapter with God today that will put your name in God's book of life and record great things from now on in God's book of remembrance. God really does allow U-turns. He really does allow people to come back. And you say, well, Danny, you don't know what I've done. And thank God I don't need to know what you've done because I know what Jesus has done for you to accomplish forgiveness, to bring you back. And uh, he, he loves you. Oh, how he loves you. And don't push away that love. Don't, uh, I think about Bailey Smith the last time he was here speaking. And uh, cancer had riddled his body but he reminded us of all the things that you have to get through if you are a sinner who goes to hell instead of heaven. You have to get by probably your mother's prayers, probably some other church people out there that are praying for you. Every sermon you've ever heard that has urged you to turn from self and sin to Jesus. Every uh, uh, one that's ever befriended you and tried to share with you all those opportunities. You've got to reject all that and walk on by and out into a Christless eternity. Don't be like Judas and Damas who are around the things of faith but never really belong to Jesus with their unbelief and denial and love for the present world uh, that is written up in the books of judgment. Turn to Revelation chapter 20. So we went to our left, now let's go to our right to the end of the Bible. Revelation 20, only two chapters after it. The final judgment, what's called the great white throne judgment, talks about books, talks about deeds being recorded in heaven and known there. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. The Apostle John writes under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Psalm 90 basically says, as the fear that is owed Yahweh, so his judgment will be. Each of us has a glory deficit between us and God. The glory that we should bring Him, the glory that we should have brought Him. And uh, among other things happening on the cross when Jesus died for our sins was the difference between what we should have brought God in glory and what we had not. All the sins instead of the righteous deeds. And there we are in our unrighteousness and uh, we had had it, and Jesus graciously takes that unrighteousness, all the impact of those sins and deeds on himself. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when a sinner trusts Christ and believes, all their sin is dealt with on the cross, and his righteous standing comes and counts for them on the day of judgment. Wow, that's pretty cool. So 
You ought to settle out of court. You don't want to go to the great white throne judgment, not letting Jesus be your sin bearer, the one that dealt with your sin on the cross. Because if not, now for the believer, everything they do still matters because there's a time coming Jesus will reward believers for all that's done for him. That's kind of what the book of remembrance is about. But for unbelievers, that's name, names aren't written in the Lamb's book of life. Everything you've ever thought, Every word you've ever said, every deed you've ever done, you'll have to give an account for as you stand before God in judgment at the great white throne judgment. It's all in the books there that are mentioned here. And they'll come out there. My goodness, get it put under the blood. Get forgiven of your sin. Verse 13 says, The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. You'd rather be rewarded for what you've done for Jesus as a Christian. The only way you can go to heaven is the deed he did for you, but you'd rather be rewarded for what you do for him than judged for the glory you failed to bring God. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that's forever and ever punishment away from the Lord, not knowing the Lord. Man, you don't want to go there. And I'm pleading with you not to go there. Pleading with you to make your peace with Christ if you haven't. Pleading with you as believers to prioritize your faith around the Lord so that when the books of remembrance are pulled out, there's one thing after another that they're celebrating that you did for Christ. Now, I don't know what all Damas gained in leaving the church and giving himself to the love of the world. I do know that every one of the people listed in Colossians 4, we're back in Colossians 4 now, every one of them has been dead for nearly 2,000 years. Now stop and think about that. They haven't been on earth for about 2,000 years. And let's say on average they lived to be 80 years old before they died. For them it was probably less than that. Very few from this time period lived to be over 80 years of age. But if they lived to 80 years old in this sin-stained world, they've now been living 25 times longer in heaven with Jesus than they lived on this earth. <laughs> Do you know Psalm 1611? You will after today, and you need to memorize this first. Put it on a three-by-five card and list it out for yourself. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now let me tell you something. If, if you don't know Christ or if you do here today, the decision to follow Christ is not a decision about whether or not to have pleasure. It's a decision to have endless pleasure or temporary pleasure that doesn't really satisfy. Temporary pleasure that will last only in this lifetime or eternal pleasure that will go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And everybody in Colossians 4 that followed Jesus and loved him has experiencing, is experiencing pleasures forevermore with the Lord. Isn't that amazing? I know that makes Christian sound kind of selfish because we're choosing the ultimate pleasure. That's what John Piper had in mind when he wrote a book a few decades ago called Christian Hedonism. Christians aren't hedonists. They don't pursue pleasure in this life. But he said, really, if you follow Christ, you're pursuing ultimate pleasure, forever pleasure, versus temporary pleasure that really rots and molds and never lasts and satisfies. Isn't that great? They've been experiencing heaven pleasures for 25 times longer than they lived on earth. Now, I don't know what pleasures Damas gained during those years in Thessalonica. I do know that if he lived to 80, he's now 
had 25 times those number of years living in torment in Hades, like the rich man from the story of rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. And you know what's so interesting about what that little parable tells us? It says that if either one, those in heaven or those in Hades awaiting the final judgment and then the lake of fire, if either one of them could come back to us today, the Christian would say, it was worth it. Whatever suffering I did in this world was worth it because of these pleasures forevermore. And the rich man would say, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. Oh, that I had followed Christ instead. Oh, that I had known him. Oh, that I had put this world in perspective and lived in obedience to Christ now so I could experience those pleasures forevermore. The torment I'm experiencing now is not worth it. You say, Danny, I'm somewhere between the 11 and Demos. I'd like to say I'm just like that Tukikos guy, but, but sometimes I'm more like the Demos. And, uh, you, you know, what about me? Somewhere there in the middle. Thank you for being honest with me. Most of us are. That's why the honest hymns of old were so great, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh, man, we're fickle sinners. We know we've got a great Savior, but many times we, uh, the old sin nature is fighting against the new nature in us with Christ now, and sometimes the battle is won by the old nature, and we are so sad because we want to be everything we want to be in Christ, and we're just not there yet. That's just life and reality, this side of death. Let me preach to you what I preach to myself. Never let yourself be content to be like Demas. Challenge your own unbelief at every turn. Challenge your, uh, confront your own unfaithfulness at every turn. Keep confessing your sin and being forgiven. Just like Pastor Lamar used to say, keep those sin accounts short. When the Holy Spirit reveals to you that you're in sin, confess it, forsake it. But if it's a habitual recurring pattern, you're also going to need to discover what fellowship with other believers means as the body of Christ helps you in small groups and good Christian friends and times like this, the challenge that it is to be together and keep spurring each other on, sometimes encouraging, you're doing a great job, sometimes exhorting, saying, do you see what this could lead to if you don't turn away from that? Keep gathering with your brothers and sisters in Christ and help each other turn away from Judas-like living to Simon Peter-like living. And that kind of leads us to the very next point from our text, which is that God intends us to be part of interlinked Bible-based communities. Interlinked interlinked Bible-based communities. Paul says to these dearly loved Christians in the Colossians church, He says, greet the brothers in the Laodicean church, which happened to be about nine miles away from them. They were close enough that they could do things together. Uh, We know that Timothy was not only in the Lystra churches, he was known to other churches there in Darby as a servant of God. It's obvious that each New Testament church was trying to live out the model scene back in Acts chapter 2. And so the priority of being part of a local church, and in a moment we'll talk more about just appreciating what other churches are as well. But turn to Acts chapter 2. So not as far back as Malachi. Just a couple, few books to the left there, Acts chapter 2. When we're talking about um, Acts chapter 2, we often go straight to verse 42. Uh, And we're going to get there in just a second. But we really need to drop back to um, verse 37. 
Uh, let's go back to verse 36. Because Peter was preaching. He's preaching from the Old Testament that Jesus, when the Old Testament says, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now he's saying, basically, Jesus is that name of the Lord to call on. Whosoever calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. So he's preaching them, and he says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So God, in the midst of preaching, uses Holy Spirit conviction. And they were cut to their heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent! Change your mind. You used to think you didn't need a Savior. Now you know you do. You used to think there were many gods out there. Now you know that Jesus is the one true God. He's the only way to get to God the Father in heaven. Repent. A change of mind that leads to a change of direction. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Because you've repented, you'll get the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. A kind of spiritual baptism as we look through the New Testament that's responded to by a physical baptism. Verse 39, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Guess what? Far off is Danville, Virginia right now in the year 2023. It was for us too, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And those there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread and to prayers. All came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had a need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." I love this whole progression in here. It shows what God does as the word is preached and as it's taught, as we specifically bring in the gospel of Jesus Christ and how just as I was saved through faith and trust in Christ, you can be saved through faith and trust in Christ. Then there's the response. In this case, they were baptized. They said, okay, he's done that for me, and he was baptized to model being immersed as a believer for me, so I'll respond to this faith that I have by being baptized. And that added them to the number. There was a membership commitment they were making there, being covenanting together with one another. They had devotion to learning and obeying the Bible's teaching. Here it's called the apostles' teaching. The apostles were taking every doctrine taught in the Bible and making it understandable in light of Christ's completed work on Calvary. And the New Testament is where we have that breakdown of information for us. They were devoted to each other. They would fellowship. They would break bread, which includes the Lord's Supper. They had corporate prayer and praise. They were together praying and praising. There was generous and sacrificial giving to meet needs. There was large group meetings where they were all in the temple common area. There were smaller group meetings from house to house. And there there was evangelism and missions. People were, the Lord was adding to their number. People were being saved. And that was because they couldn't stop talking about what Jesus had done for them out in the community. Well, in the pages of the book of Colossians, we've seen all that was happening there as well. 
So in chapter one, Paul commended the Colossians for their faith, hope, and love. They had faith in Jesus. They had hope of eternity with Jesus. They had love for each other and people they came in contact with. He had reminded them that they had been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of light. He told them the goal of every preaching and teaching thing we do is to present every person perfect in Christ, mature in Christ, to reproduce faithful and fruitful followers of Christ is the way we say it. In chapter 2, he had taught them they already had an all-sufficient Savior who had given them an all-sufficient salvation. Uh, He taught them that Jesus didn't just emanate from God. He wasn't a ray from the sun. He's more like the sun in this analogy, right? He's not an emanation from God. He is the God who created all things. As Eddie said, he's the God who sustains all things. And we are to worship him, not people or angels. Because of who Jesus is, they were to reject all the false teachers that they came across who said Jesus was not enough and their salvation was incomplete. But it wasn't just enough to preach well, to teach well. They needed to live well and love well. So Paul told them that since they were raised with Christ, they were needed to seek the things where Christ is the place where they're going. They needed to live on earth as citizens of heaven now. Still in Colossae, still in the world, but not of the world. New people now with a new mission. Just as if one of you was called to be the ambassador to another country. You'd go and live in that country. You'd respect them. You'd try to teach them some of the ways from back home, but you'd always be accountable to back home. We are citizens of heaven. We're ambassadors for Jesus Christ. They were to put off their old pagan way of living with the selfish deeds, the sinful deeds, the sensual deeds. And they were put on the kind of things that Christ modeled while he was on earth. They were to do everything they did now in the name of Jesus. Not just at church, but as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as bosses and workers. He called them to make the most of every opportunity they had with outsiders, with speech and actions that adorned the gospel they hoped to share. And so what a great look we've had through Colossians because the call on us today is all those things as well. That's how they were to live in the Colossian church and what Paul expected also of the church nine miles down the road. So the call to greet here in this text here, look again at verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea. And to Nympha, uh, that she's the one who had opened her, gloriously converted, opened her uh, home to be the house church they were at there. Verse 16, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from the Laodiceans. And so, in addition to being deeply rooted in their own uh, local church expression there in Colossae, they were to interact well and greet those. This presupposes they already knew each other. They had brotherly relationships with them, and together they were committed to being biblically faithful churches in Colossae and in Laodicea. Now, don't use these references here to glorify having a house church. House churches can be wonderful things, but Christians in those early days, they met wherever they could in the first couple hundred years after Christ. They met in houses, they met in the open courtyards of the temple, places like Tyrannus' Hall, catacombs, and things like that. As soon as Roman persecution eased, it took about 170 AD for it to do that, but as soon as Roman persecution eased, they began building actual buildings. That's what archaeology and uh, tells us as we look at it, they started building church buildings that met the needs of individual congregations with more people that could fit in the house. Now, wise church leaders these last 2,000 years have also promoted small groups about the number of people that can meet in the house. 
uh, within the larger church context, and they've organized other helpful ministries. But let me just say something to you guys as you interact with people. You won't... You won't go another three months without hearing somebody say, well, I'm not into organized religion. What do you prefer, disorganized religion? What that person usually means is, Jesus and I, we got our own thing going. I don't want to talk to you about it. And if I'm wrong, I'll just face it on judgment day. You go ahead on, and I'll I'll go ahead on and leave me alone. I'm not going to organize and gather with other believers. Don't fall for that. Don't fall for that. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14 that everything should be done decently and in order. And that sounds like organized religion to me. It sounds like making the most of your resources as you come together to not only grow in Christ together, but impact the world for Christ, meet needs in the life of the body and beyond. The word team, a good acronym for it is together each accomplishes more. And I'll tell you, I I can't give a million dollars to missions every four years by myself, but the tabernacle together has. Right, And so it is awesome what we achieve together and how we grow, to e- grow together. And uh, you know, when you think about the Serengeti, those that get isolated from their herd are the ones that the predators pick off, right? Those who are not with the herd. So whether you gather in a tent or a church building or under a tree, stay together in Christ. Grow together in Christ. Impact the world together for Christ. The church was Jesus' idea. It was his idea to put new believers together in a new family to go along with the family they already had and to extend the number of brothers and sisters and mother and father figures that they had so that we could get through this very tough life to get through, intact spiritually, making an impact for him and not constantly being picked off by the lions and the hyenas that are out there, the predators. Now, what about this, the fact that there's a letter to the Laodiceans? Now, we know the Colossians letter, it winds up in the Bible as Scripture that the Holy Spirit wrote through Paul. Paul wrote the letter to the Laodiceans well, and for some reason it's not Scripture. Well, there's a couple ways to think about this. Uh, As part of our own spiritual growth, it's good to mutually share what we're learning with fellow Bible-based Christians in the community. But remember that Paul has already warned them about to reject false teaching. And so I'm actually ahead of myself just a little bit, so let's catch this point, and then we'll tell you about the letter to the Laodiceans and things. But um, So there was the church in Colossae, the church nine miles away in Laodicea. And they were accountable to their own local church and its leaders. The New Testament seems to encourage that, but they also had others right down the road that they were also interlinked with to not only encourage as they went through a week uh, or as a month or whatever, but also that they presumably could every once in a while do big things together in the name of Christ, something along the lines of what we do with our friends at the Southern Baptist Conservatives of Virginia, and we appreciate our sister churches within that and other Bible-believing churches. But remember, whenever we talk about fellowship beyond the local church, that they're also, uh, you know, Paul had already warned them to reject false teaching. I think you all are aware that not everything that calls itself a church is a church, right? You can, call, you can go to McDonald's and call yourself a hamburger, but that doesn't make you one, right? And there are churches that when they get around to talking about the truth of the Bible, they reject the truth of the Bible. 
God's word is very clear that human sexuality, the only non-sinful, the only holy way to be involved in sexuality is a husband and wife within the marital covenant. All other expressions of sexuality are sin that needs to be repented of. Whether it's fornication, whether it's adultery, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's the other creative ways that people find to sin, whether it's transgenderism or whatever it is. All those are things that if you want to be a Christian, you have to turn from those things. And we know the number of churches are growing that refuse to call it sin and will even have their leaders who open the word and share with others be people that think those sexual sins are okay. Ichabod has been written over the door of those churches. The glory has departed. That's a church in name only. To be a church of Jesus Christ, he told us what you have to be. He said, you've got to obey my words and my commands. Right? If you're mine, you're going to obey my words and my commands. To reject those commands in any area. Some churches do it with the very idea of whether Jesus is the way of salvation or not. They'll say, well, he's just our way. He's our example. But for Muslims, Allah's, uh, Muhammad taught the way. And, for, and, they, and no, no, all that needs to be rejected for serious Bible-believing Christians that love Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to get to the Father but through him. Amen? And so you have to believe that or you're not a church. The fact that churches are apostatizing and going away from the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So even as you have fellowship with others, you need to make, you need to make clear whether or not they really uh, believe in the Bible, they really believe Jesus is the only way of salvation, etc. Now let's get back to thinking about the letter to Laodicea. Um, we know that in First and Second Corinthians, Paul also referred to two other letters he'd written to the Corinthians. In fact, some scholars say what we have in First and Second Corinthians is really the second letter Paul wrote to them and the fourth letter he wrote to them. <laughs> so even though we don't have the other letters of Paul, let me make this clear. We can be absolutely confident that God the Holy Spirit so worked in time that we have exactly the ones he wanted to be part of the Bible. You know why I can say that? I can say that uh, not only because I trust what the Lord's given us, but I can also say that because I've read through church history, and there's something that's really wonderful. You know how we oftentimes encourage, uh, whether it's Sunday school classes or here, to go through Bible books, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, thought by thought, you know, word by word, and go through there like we do here on the Sunday mornings? You know they did that in the early church also? And it's so neat because a lot of those writings have survived. And usually they would read the text that they were preaching from and then give comment on it. So those that wrote that down for us in the 200s and the 300s and the 400s, they wrote down the text and they wrote down what the preacher said from the text. Well, guess what we can do? We can go back and reproduce nearly all of the New Testament from what they were preaching on. And they somehow themselves understood, okay, that the letter to the Laodiceans that's been lost may have been helpful, but it's the letter to the Colossians that God the Holy Spirit used Paul to write that survived to become scriptures and is exactly what God wants us to know as part of the canon, the measuring out of the Word of God to us. So scholars tell us that you can reproduce nearly the entire New Testament from the sermons of 2nd through 
fourth century church leaders, they would read from books like Colossians as scriptures and they'd preach from them. And I'm so glad that they did. Sometimes they would read from other early Christian books like the Shepherd of Hermas that doesn't go back before 100. Every book in your Bible goes back before 100 A.D. Shepherd of Hermas, about 110, 115, somewhere in there. The Didache that uh, was after that. They sometimes would quote those things as well. But they would make clear they didn't regard them as Scripture. So it would be more like when yours truly quotes C.S. Lewis or C.H. Spurgeon. Helpful, but not Bible. And there are resources today, Christians who have prayed and they've written things. And they're helpful, but they're not Bible. They can encourage us, but they should always be scrutinized in light of the Bible. Because in addition to flat-out false teaching, there's also a lot of fruity teaching, right? And so the Bible helps us realize this is not the most helpful, it's a little fruity, and this is absolutely false teaching that we reject. Other times, those early pastors, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, they would warn people about the writings claiming to be from 1st century apostles, that around Easter time, so many of the Discovery Channels like to make big use of, but there's not much there there. Uh, they're trying to you know, criticize the early church for in power games, rejecting what could also be part of the Word of God, and they're saying it was the power and influence of the church that did that. There was no power and influence in that early church. <laughs> the, we have all the way back to people that were writing and also getting killed after they wrote. You know, uh, They wanted to get it right. They weren't trying to reject others. They were trying to get it right. And they said, no, that stuff being taught here in the third and fourth century, that's as fruity and as false as what they were trying to do the Colossians, teach them during the days of the mystery of the religions. And so it's really cool. I hope I didn't get too eggheaded there on you. The point is, you were not meant to live your Christian life apart from gathering with other believers and together grow in Christ and impact your community, and the entire world for Jesus. That leads to the final point. There's an appeal to a man named Archippus here, and then an appeal for us. Look at verse 17. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I'm going to put Philemon 1 up here on the board for you. Philemon's only got one chapter, so it's all chapter 1. But here's the first two verses. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Philemon's wife was named Aphia. Archippus is the first among equals, the pastor of the church that met in their home. He may have even been their son, the way that's worded. But he was a key first among equals preaching figure in the life of the Colossian church. And Paul, at the end of Colossians, says... Tell Archippus. He wants the whole church to hear a word he's got for the pastor. Whole church. Tell Archippus to fulfill the ministry that he's been given. It's as if the entire tabernacle rose up and said, Pastor Danny, fulfill your preaching ministry in our midst. Tell us the things that are easy to teach us. Tell us the things that are hard to teach us. You've got more time to study, but if we studied it, we want to know that you're going to teach us what we'd get to if we had the time to study it out like that. And that's why you ought to, when you catch me saying something that doesn't square with the Scriptures, say, Pastor Danny, you're a little off on that one, and I'll receive that well, because I want to get it right. James says, I've got a stricter judgment coming because I'm a teacher of God's Word. I want to get it right. Church, tell your pastor. Preach to us, pastor. 
Fulfill the ministry you've got in our midst. The word for ministry there is the word diakonia that means serving. So it's ministry, but it's really serving. You get deaconing out of there, don't you? You get serving. The Son of Man came not to be deaconed, the verb form, but to deacon and to give his life a ransom for many. We're not here to be served, all of us. We're here to serve instead. And we each have different areas of service. In the context, it's obvious the serving in mind is the serving of the word to the church, as in Acts 6-4, where the apostles created deacons to minister to needs within the church, uh, while they devoted themselves to prayer and the ministry, the deaconing of the word, the uh, ministry there. The reality is, We all have a ministry to fulfill, and so do they. That same word occurs in another place, about 30 places, but another place that's key and important for us today. Ephesians 4.12 says the pastor's job, the pastors, the plurality of leaders in the church, it's their job to equip the saints for the work of ministry, same word there, for building up the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.12 doesn't say it's my job to meet all the needs in the life of the church. It says it's our job to meet the needs in the life of the church and to win the next generation of Christians who will serve with us here at the tabernacle to the Lord in the community and around the world. My unique way I fulfill that is to edify Alan and Eddie and all of us on the pastoral staff. Our job is to edify, to build you up and to equip you to do the ministries that you're called to do when we gather together and when we go out into a community and world that needs Jesus Christ. So we're not the star of the football team, so to speak. We're the equipment managers. You're going to need this out there. Let me get it to you. You're going to need this out there. Let me get it to you. How can I equip? How can I help you do it? And together we do the work of the ministry. So i got two questions for you. First one is, do you have an area of service or ministry in the church or community? Is there something that you've got your name on, as Pastor Lamar used to say? Is there something where you say, that's my way of helping to grow and build this thing up, to encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ, some way of serving? It doesn't have to be in front of the scenes, behind the scenes. That needs to begin in your childhood years here at the Tabernacle. Um, In fact, one thing that's really true is if you don't have a ministry by the time you go off to college, if you're not already connected with some of the older saints in the church and ministering together with them somehow, you are far less likely to be involved in ministry till much later in life. But those who are already doing that by middle school and high school, guess what? They go off to college and go to a church and teach Sunday school there too, or sing in the choir there too, or are part of the praise team there too. When it just becomes natural to be part of who you are. And that's why we are committed to leadership development from the earliest days and giving opportunities to share and to do different things from the earliest days. Do you have an area of service in the church? And the second question is, are you fulfilling that ministry? So many of you are. And here's my challenge to you this week. The next time you catch someone doing something right for the Lord, say to them, thank you for fulfilling your ministry. I had a joke with that this week in the church because one of the ladies brought in donuts And I was very thankful (laughs) for her fulfilling that ministry, that act of service. Tell people thank you. 
Catch them doing stuff right. We oftentimes gossip and slander and talk about things we see going wrong. Catch people doing stuff right and say, thank you for doing that around here. I didn't realize you were the one that did that around here. Thank you for doing that. Well, Paul leaves the Colossians with one last thought. He says, remember my chains. Eddie said it well as we entered into singing. Paul was in prison when he wrote this, and he said, don't forget. I'd love to be there in Colossae with you, but don't forget, I'm here in the prison suffering. And he'd already told them to pray for opportunities in the midst of that suffering, that he'd be faithful to share the gospel. He was seeing prisoners. He was seeing guards saved. And, you know, uh, change doesn't mean you stop being who you are in Christ. It doesn't mean you, don't, it's, you stop serving. But we want to particularly remember those having a hard time in our area, around the country, around the world, who are mocked, harassed, and even persecuted for the faith. I think for the most part, the tabernacle has members that encourage others to grow in Christ, but I've seen this be a problem even in churches. I've seen in youth group, one kid really gets excited about the Lord and starts uh, growing in the Lord, and others kind of make fun of him a little bit for being holy and trying to do the right thing. I've seen that happen to young adults trying to do the right thing and not doing what everybody else does around them. I've seen singles under that kind of pressure from their fellow singles, even in church contexts and stuff like that. I've seen widows and widowers struggling to remain pure and just kind of being told by other carnal Christians they know, oh, you got to look the other way on those things. It'll be okay. It's not okay. You want to be faithful to the Lord. People will mock you if you follow Christ. They will harass you. They'll persecute you. And around the world, some people die for their faith. I hope you have some way. I've already told you that I do. I hope you have some way, whether it's through Open Doors or Voice of the Martyrs, those apps that are out there, of praying for your persecuted brothers and sisters around the world in Christ. My goodness, Christians languishing in prisons in North Korea and in Iran and other places. Don't forget them. Pray for them. Don't forget them. Lift them up. Remember their chains. Paul said to do that. Will you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.